Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. This week's episode, Air By, recorded Thursday, January 3rd, 2013. This time we talk about, uh, we finally got an official FAA administrator and a European cargo plane that touches down very, very short. Jeb tells us about his new EFB tablet computer and what really caused the infamous Concorde crash. It may not be what you thought. All of this and more on today's episode of UCAP. Clear. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat in the house. It's got a runway in the front yard. Did <laughs> <laughs> you see this video of this uh, cargo plane? German, maybe. I'm not sure. But uh, it's a sort of a C-123-ish. Uh, yeah, cargo it's a plane. C-160. Yeah. C-160, which is seems to be like a C-123, but uh, so it's a it's a it's a Hercules-like two-engine turboprop. Or, it's basically or, a twin-engine uh, C-130. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it shows it coming in to land uh, at uh, you know I mean at, on final it kind of looks fairly normal until it reaches the touchdown point. Have you seen this? Did you watch yeah. this video? Yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty intense landing. I. I uh, 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 it's he's he's one of the uh, one of the world's lucky SOBs. Yeah, really, he is. He truly is. Well, you know, I mean, and- it's just remarkable that because he doesn't seem to arrest his arrival path in any way. There, that last hundred feet, when if he had just nudged the throttles a little bit, he would have gone over that. But I'm I question whether he actually recognized that that berm with that road across it right. was between him and the touchdown zone. Right. Well, he was he's aiming I don't know what he's aiming for and he didn't have much of a flare. Um but in if you watch the video all the way through I'm not convinced that wasn't maybe by design because he doesn't have a whole lot of runway. That's what I was thinking too. Okay, so just for folks who haven't seen this video, um, this this cargo plane is coming in on a relatively low uh, low angle approach, um, but didn't look unusual until it reached the touchdown point, and it actually ended up touching down uh, on or just prior to this uh, this access road um, that was a ways before the beginning of the pavement of the runway, which was a ways before the uh, the actual. Uh, 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 touchdown area and uh, and the people who were pointing us to this video kept making comments about how the photographers were really lucky because they didn't get clipped by this airplane now by the way I'm not convinced that there were any people in a really I mean they were close but I, I was looking no, at it pretty carefully they're, they're not they're not under the one yeah so uh, but it touched down on on the road and I actually think it touched down prior to the road and it touched down on the on the on the rising side of the berm, not before, not there in the flat. Yeah, if you go to forty three seconds into the video and then play with it, just the real fine touch left or right, you can move yeah. it about a frame at a time. Yeah. You'll see the dirt coming off the ground on the rising side of the berm. Right, that's what I noticed just too. Just ahead of the road, it didn't hit in the flat. If it had hit in the flat, I think the nose gear would have hit the road first. If it had been so low as to hit out there where it's a little lower, right. I think if that raised terrain hadn't been there, he would have he would have greased right onto the threshold of that runway. 
mm-hmm. and not touched anything in between. Maybe I don't know. I I have this my you know I mean my my theory is that he was in fact aiming for the road. Um, so I ran the uh, text the the uh, this is a YouTube video you translated it and uh, I ran it through Google Translate and uh, <laughs> and it came up fairly broken English, but it seemed to be indicating that uh, that this guy was actually this is this was a final flight. This was being delivered to like a museum or something. All right, and it was landing on a very short runway and uh um and so my speculation is that the pilot intended to touch down on the road um to give himself as much distance as possible and um really bad bad idea and that really bad idea but i don't think that's the case i think he misjudged this yeah uh i think is i think as dave correctly pointed out the the roadway is slightly higher than the runway mm mm-hmm. mhm and I think he it was all. I think he was just grinning from ear to ear about how he's got this thing nailed. He's going to set down the mains on the, the the threshold of the runway, and at the last second, he's like, "Oh, wait a second! There's a that roadway is in the way." And whether or not he knew that, whether or not he accepted it, I don't know. But if you go frame by frame, it's really interesting how um, the nose wheels over the in one frame the nose wheels over the road, roadway excuse me not the runway the roadway and the mains are below they appear to be below the roadway right before they touch yeah i, I agree with that it, it does not touch in the ground yet either yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I agree he touched down prior to the road pavement and uh, on on mm-hmm. sort of the uphill side of that embankment and uh, I, I read yeah. i read some stuff about it uh, some comments that i found elsewhere it's like Okay, I get the final flight kind of thing. Uh, no way in hell I think that that was part of his flight plan. No. Uh, I think he was so zoned on the arrival end of that short runway that he didn't notice in that low sunlight uh, or the sun angle that they got there, it didn't cast any shadows. It was such a smooth change uh, that coming in at an angle, you'd never even notice that it was a rise until you got right on top of it. Mm-hmm. And he's zoned on the end of that pavement out there, and like then, then I think he realized that just as it was about to happen, it almost looks like it's trying to pitch up, but it doesn't have a chance. No, there's really not much of a flare on the airplane at all. No, there's not. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm just glad it didn't break anything because that a buddy of mine hit a raised little piece of tarmac like this landing his 185 at a grass strip uh, uh, at a picnic a few years ago. I got photographs of it head on. And, uh, you know, you see him just before the shadows over the road. He's not touching the road. Then it prangs the road. And you see the gear all splayed out in the next frame. And the next frame, he's about five feet back in the air again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he taxied in and goes, I meant to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, all's well that ends well, but I, I wouldn't make this standard operating procedure. Yeah, no, he... The, 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 again, though, the punchline is, you know, if you play the video all the way to the end, um, it looks like he's got just about as much runway left over as was between uh, where he initially touched down yeah. <laughs> and, and the threshold. So... 
I, you know, I, whether right. you planned it that way or not, it worked out. But I wouldn't, I, the kids don't try this at home. Yeah, really. So I was just trying to see if I could get this, this text and put it through the translator again. Let's see here. Where is it? Do we do this? Well, after he hits the runway, or, or the roadway, I should say, he hits the rising side of it. He, he clears the rest of the roadway pretty much and has got air beneath the tires again on the other side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that could have been so much more uh, damaging that I can't imagine anybody saying, well, this will, this will help. It's not quite like an arrestor cable. But. Yeah. So <laughs> according to Google Translate, the, uh, the note, the, 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 the note of the person who uh, posted this video, let's see now, this is kind of broken English, but uh, it says, uh, uh, let's see now, the Transail C-160 was expected on the airfield in Ballenstedt Hearts. The discarded Transail from Bavaria was passed thanks to the owner of the Aviation Museum in Wernigerode. Here in Ballenstedt held its last landing of the aircraft. Two flights over the airfield and then it went in for a landing. The landing was the pilot for a hard challenge because the runway is only 800 meters long. The pilot sat on but already on the road again and got swung upward. That's how it translates by Google Translate. Sprung. Yeah, right. Remind me never to try to learn German. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways. Well, it looks like he's got a fair amount of pavement left when he finally gets stopped and, and starts to reverse to back taxi. Oh, I agree with Jeb, though. I think he's got just about as much left over <laughs> as he gained by landing on the road. Uh, I, I think it was a real touch and uh, get it? A real touch and go thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. You're, you're going to use that for I made, a segue? I made myself laugh. It was great. Uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, this is Jack Hodgson. I'm here from high atop Lookout Point in uh, Notting- in Chile, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Oh, man, I'm just ready to leave. I'm ready to go someplace where it's warm, uh, which we'll talk about later on. But uh it's been like we got down to zero last night for the first time this season, and uh, it's going to get close to that again tonight. So, um, but we're going to have a veritable heat wave over the next couple of days. Uh, starting tomorrow, it's supposed to get above freezing every day for like three or four days. So, see, so that's good. That'll play hell with the ice. Yeah. So I'm here with my uh, two good friends, and uh, going to talk about airplanes for a little while. Uh, one of those voices out there is uh, Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm warm. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh... <laughs> shorts and a t-shirt. Well, you know what? Then just for making a smart ass crack like that, I'm coming to your house. Oh no, you can't do that. We won't allow that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Now you uh, know. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I know. That's a, we, we we were talking about this, and uh, I'm going to go down and hang out there for a little while around about uh, Sebring time, the LSA Expo uh, in uh, Sebring, Florida. So that'll be fun. But uh, uh, so it's so what? Anything else? Going, other than it being warm, Jeb, having any fun? You doing anything good? Uh, working, working, working. Yeah, uh, yeah. I got too many projects and and not enough hands and fingers to make them all happen. But uh, somehow it'll all come together. And also out there is Dave Higdon talk, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas, where you say that you, you're glad that it's cold. That's what you told us earlier. 
Well, uh, yeah, it hadn't been intolerable. Uh, and the little bit of snow, man, everybody needs the moisture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's so seriously dry here and has been for such a long time that um, uh, smart people were talking about how instead of an inch and a half or two inches like we got, that you know, eight to ten spread over four or five days wouldn't have been a bad thing at all. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that part's good, I admit. The, I, I, I've been hearing these stories about how the, uh, the the Mississippi River is like dramatically low as a result of this drought all throughout the middle of the country. and uh, so well, I passed over it twice uh uh, just before and right on Christmas Day, passed over the Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it was startling to see how low it was at St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, twelve, thirteen feet below what I'm, I'm used to seeing, uh, and uh, there's no way it's not going to affect barge traffic really soon. Uh, if it hadn't, well, it has already. Actually. I think We've I read someplace enforcing yeah. shallow drafts though. Yeah, and usually Jack gets his own jokes only when he's editing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so what else is going on here? Let's see. Uh, uh, so this is actually there's not an awful lot of serious stories on this list today, but this is one that's a little bit serious. Um, so it was a WallStreetJournal.com story here. Let me actually pull it up on the screen here, so I can make sure I'm getting this right here. Headline is Airbus switching parts after warnings on icing. And uh, it's taking its time coming up on my screen. But as I recall, the story was that they've decided to um, do some pretty serious uh, uh, um, retrofitting or something. To uh, you guys more familiar with this story than I am? Because it's not coming up on this website for some reason. Yeah, what uh, I did was was um, copy the headline, paste it into Google, click search. The first, the first um, return, click on it, and it popped up the full text. That worked. Aviation regulators have recently issued emergency safety warnings that icing prevention device and devices championed by plane maker Airbus can have the opposite of their intended effect, causing key sensors on the aircraft to freeze up and triggering a potentially dangerous dive. Now, that's just the first paragraph, but uh, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like something that we heard had happen a, a few years think, back? Let me think about this. I yeah. can't put my finger on it, but um, yeah. what a mystery. Let's Somehow see. I want to translate all this into French. Yeah, I know. So this, all kidding aside, this is a, a, um, kind of uh, surprisingly or sadly uh, f- similar to what apparently happened on Air France 447 flying from South America back to France a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any time, and Jeb, I know this was a subject that you were following pretty closely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you still are, yeah. but is this, are they making this connection? Yeah, they'll read down further into the article, mm-hmm. about halfway down. What does and it say? They finally bring in the uh, Air France four four seven crash. Okay, can you read uh, the read the paragraph for us, please? Well, I'll read the paragraph. Yeah, it says doubts about the re- reliability of various sensors and how pilots should respond if they go haywire gained particular prominence after the June two thousand nine crash of an Air France Airbus A three thirty en route from Rio de Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro to Paris. Temporary airspeed sensor malfunctions triggered a cascade of automated cockpit warnings that confused the pilots who put the plane into a stall. All 228 aboard were killed in the crash. Um, But this is this is not. I guess the news here is that the the revised product or or uh, um, new pitot tubes or or whatever they're talking about here 
um, are are not are not working out. The uh, um, now is this the equipment that was well, I, on? Re- reading further, and I'm you know doing all this on the fly here. That's reading okay. the third graph talks about the uh, angle of attack indicators uh, being the problem now, uh, as opposed to pitot tubes. Back in, I want to go back to '08. Uh, when um, Airbus and or, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the name of the company, Fails, um, was the manufacturer, I believe, of the um, original pitot tubes on, on uh, many Airbuses. And um, they were, um, I forget the failure mode, or even if there was a failure mode, they maybe weren't getting hot enough or... Somehow we're, we're being becoming susceptible to some type of failure, presumably uh, icing. And uh, even before the Air France 447 tragedy, um, Air France uh, had a program underway to replace those pitot tubes on um, at least their 330 fleet, if not all of their airby and, and perhaps all of their aircraft. I don't I don't recall all the details. Um, the aircraft in question did not have um, the replaced uh, pitot tubes. It had the old style or the, the old, uh, the ones that Air France wanted to remove and replace on it uh, when it crashed. Um, it's my understanding that, that Air France very quickly after the 447 tragedy uh, replaced all the pitot tubes and, and, and moved on. Now, according to this article, uh, and according to um, um, apparently Airbus, um, the the angle of attack indicators uh, are also at fault, mm-hmm. uh, are, are are being determined to be at fault. Um, and yeah, especially with a highly automated airplane like the uh, like the Airbus, I can see where that would be a problem. Um, the the angle of attack indicators, of course, are those devices that you'll see on the side of a jet. Uh, fuselage that are that pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they um, are mounted on the side and have a, a short arm, usually uh, trailing aft, um, with a small airfoil on the on the uh, the aft uh, uh, portion of the uh, of the device. And that indicator that I should say that airfoil, of course, um, um, reacts in a certain way to the airflow going past the airplane and serves as uh, an angle of attack indicator um, because it sticks out, um, because it uh, um, pivots, uh, because it's a critical uh, uh, flight item, it has to be heated also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And according to, um, um, let's see, um, it's not clear to me, yeah, freeze up and... Uh, Causing key sensors on this aircraft to freeze up and triggering a potentially dangerous dive. Yeah, uh, seems like uh, uh, what they're talking about here is um, a, a, a problem similar, if not identical, to what was happening with the uh, the pitot tubes. Yeah, um, that they're not um, they're not uh, heated up enough. I don't know. They're not hot enough. I don't. Yeah, know. I don't know. Well, and 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 it and it actually says that that whatever is going on here not only doesn't effectively de-ice these instruments or these sensors, but but may in fact aggravate the problem, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, did, go ahead. Did the uh, Air France four four seven investigation find any indication that there might have been a problem with the angle of attack sensors on that aircraft aer- aer- airplane? 
off the top of my head, no. Yeah, I don't remember hearing anything like that. It all talked about the airspeed sensors. Yeah, what the the, the cascade of events started with um, basically iced over pitot tubes, which caused you know loss of airspeed sensors, which triggered a bunch of of alarms in the in the computer system. Uh, not least of which was to trick off, trip off the autopilot um, and put a bunch of red X's on the primary attitude indicators, uh, leaving the crew um, scratching its head uh, as to what was wrong. Um, this would seem to have a similar effect. Yeah. If if these components are, are, are known to fail, um, the... Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to think through the logic on this while we're talking. Um, if you if you have airspeed but don't have uh, angle of attack indication, um, I don't know if the Airbus system is smart enough to figure out that power uh, plus pitch equals airspeed. And, well, wouldn't uh, you? Yeah, I know, huh? You know, it, um, if you set power to a certain value and you have a certain airspeed as a result of that, and you've got the pressure and the altitude and everything else. You can make a quick computation and say, "Yeah, okay, the uh, uh, the, the attitude of the aircraft is correct because these other parameters are correct." Yeah. So. But I don't. I, again, I don't know if the software is that smart. David just sent us a link to an article that basically is. I think David's basic opinion here, point position here, is that airline pilots ought to get some training in hang gliders, right, David? Well, in this particular case, the the writer, one David Learmont, who is an editor of Flight International for a long time, okay, uh, he uh, lauding the return of airmanship in this particular second three uh, airplanes issues with iced over sensors and their recovery, and uh, I, I just thought it was interesting reading. It is and interesting. Points out something that so, is kind of fundamental. Uh, at some point, we have to simplify all this stuff for the flight crew to operate and have to have it operate in a foolproof way so that they can work with the sensors that won't fail and you know, have a control architecture that won't fail them. Yeah. So this is a story from FlightGlobal.com, which now you're saying this is about the exact same incident that yeah. the uh, first story. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, it, it, it tracks. Um Let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly one of the instant incident incidents that that is, has led to this this story in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. So, very very interesting. Yeah, it all is. You no. Know, um, I don't know where to go with it here. I guess we're done. Well, well, I I don't know. I mean, if you if you you, you, yeah. you would think. I don't know how to put this without um, sounding, you know, all knowledgeable or something. But you would think again, as, I, as I, we, we talked a moment ago, you'd think the software would be smart enough to realize that, you know, if it loses one parameter or one parameter is is out of whack, but all the other parameters are in whack, are, are nominal, that maybe the problem isn't uh, the angle of attack of the aircraft, but maybe it's the angle of attack indicator. Right, and you know, goes goes back to, um, um, you know, just because you lose airspeed, obviously, if you're cruising at, you know, 
I don't know, 270 knots indicated, and all of a sudden it goes to zero, well, gee, you know, I haven't hit a mountain. I'm still alive. So maybe there's some other problem going on here, and maybe I shouldn't disconnect the autopilot. Maybe I should just flash a warning that says, we've lost airspeed indication. We're going to maintain what we, what we had a few moments ago until, this, until we figure the rest of this stuff out. Yeah. But I guess that's two. That's two, yeah. In a story that I think is probably not related, David, you've called our attention to this video of top ten low-pass flybys of all time. <laughs> is there something new about this? I thought we've seen this before. Haven't we talked about this before? Uh, I couldn't I remember know. if we'd talked have about we? this. If we have, then edit that out. Well, let me look. I, mean, I, I remember us talking about this before, but then again, I probably was having an adult beverage when we recorded that podcast. <laughs> uh, I would be shocked to know that. Yes, I know. Huh? It starts out with the infamous uh, Top Gun flyby. <laughs> Come on, Mav. Well, we're gonna we're gonna buzz the tower. We're gonna buzz the tower, Goose. It's time to buzz the tower. I don't know. I've got it muted, so I don't know. I think that's what they say, don't they? Mm-hmm. And it's coming back in 3D. So, anyways, it's called the top 10 low pass flybys with apostrophe S on flybys. Oh well, I guess. And I think most of them are real life right. military I, flights and not movie flights. A lot of these are kind of familiar. I part of me says we shouldn't even be talking about this because it's just you should not be encouraging this kind of behavior. I want to know if it has the one with the news reporter guy who's got his back to the. Uh... Apparently, it doesn't. Well, well then, how can it be one? Uh, how can it be top ten? How can it be a top ten? I I agree. You know, I agree. I don't see the the Spitfire in here. There's a lot of a lot of Tomcats and and eighteens and oh, it, and uh, some tornadoes. It does have this guy yeah. though. It has the guy at around two yeah. thirty. Uh, the guy who was standing out on the center line, and he just does yeah, not flinch. Yeah. That one's impressive. That That's, one is that impressive. Is a, guy's got big brass ones. Yeah. That. <laughs> that, was, that was a pretty good one. I, that was impressive. Um, and uh, that's, number two was a big, was a 707 or something, or a B-52 doing a low pass. Uh, seeing. Yeah, there's a couple of those where the guys are standing not far off the flight path on a higher train. And you look at that and going, wow, he's lower than me. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and the so-called number one is uh, Blue Angel doing a low pass along the water over San Francisco Bay, and yeah. uh, he not only is is disturbing the water with his with his uh, his wake, <laughs> but he's he's generating one of those funny clouds around the back end of the airplane that it's called a shockwave. Shockwave. Well, but everyone confuses it with a uh, with a uh, sonic boom shockwave, which it's not. It's just a it's a or shock it, it would be if he went faster. Yeah, but but in this particular case and just about every case where you see an image like that, it's not a sonic boom shockwave. It's a shockwave that, you know, is usually there, but because of the conditions It'll cause just short water vapor to. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't think he's just short of it. I don't think these guys go nearly supersonic that close to the crowd, that close to the ground. <laughs> you know, and there's a classic picture of the uh, of the B, of the uh, Cessna 150 generating such a shockwave. So, yes, yes. you know. So, anyways, what's next here? Uh, when it was last episode or one before, one of the recent episodes, I got all worked up about uh, a. Uh, oh. A proposal for Boeing to create uh, a version of one of their jetliners that had wingtips that folded up to fit into smaller gate areas, and uh, came across this picture of a uh, uh, 
a, a military aircraft. First of all, it's an interesting aircraft. That's the main reason. I don't need to dredge up the folding wing thing. But this particular wing folds in two places to get it really narrow. And uh, oh, it's double jointed. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from uh, this is from our forums. Uh, I, I dated someone like that in college. Yeah. Okay. Listener, <laughs> moving on. Uh, <laughs> listener, uh, Os Pilot Ben uh, uh, posts in the forums uh, a picture. Of, let's see if he says what kind of an airplane it is. A, a, a ferry, a ferry, ferry Gannett, ferry Gannett, um, and. Uh, it's uh, uh, what's what kind of air? Is this like a uh, an attack aircraft? Must be an attack. It's not a, a fighter. Naval, um, yeah, naval attack aircraft. Yeah, okay. In like um, fifties. Yeah, but even even so it more. Says it was a post World War II sub hunter. Oh, there we go. So it might, yeah. So it might be attack. It might be, might be uh, observing. Sub hunter, they said. Yeah. So uh, possibly more interesting than the double folding wings. All right. Yeah. Is the uh, is the uh, Propellers, the uh, yeah. the counter rotating counter rotating yeah. um, um, coaxial uh, uh, propellers here, uh, which I, I those are always it's it's kind of cool engineering. It's always struck me as like uh, of questionable efficiency because uh, that back propeller is getting some seriously disturbed air, and uh, not yeah, but it's going the other way. Well, yeah, okay, so it's going the other way, so so it untangles the air created by the propeller in front, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, I know you are. The air doesn't know which way to go. Uh-huh. That's right. The it's air, not a P factor, it's a P factor. Yeah. The, the air is very confused. Does this Wikipedia story talk about the uh, the counter-rotating props here? Let's see if we... No, but I bet, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um... Contra rotating propeller. There is a link there too. Um, operation. It is well designed. If it is well designed, a contra rotating propeller will have no rotational airflow, pushing a maximum amount of air uniformly through the propeller disc, resulting in high performance and low induced energy loss. Um, contra rotating propellers have been found to be between 6 and 16% more effective than normal propellers. However, they can be very noisy with increases in noise in the axial forward and aft direction of up to 30 decibels and tangentially 10 decibels. Much of this extra noise can be found in the higher frequencies. Um, da 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 da. Oh, maybe where the axial is. Um, yeah, the efficiency of a contra-rotating prop is somewhat offset by its mechanical complexity. Nonetheless, coaxial contra-rotating propellers and rotors are moderately common in military aircraft. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I can see that. I mean, um, I don't know. There's a photo here of a TU-95. Um um, TU-95 and, and derivatives of it, I think, still hold the, the record for the world's fastest uh, propeller-driven aircraft. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, back in the 50s, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot my mouth off here and someone's going to correct me down the road here. Um, yeah, TU... Um, yeah, I read the uh, read down significant aircraft, USSR, Russia, and Ukraine, and the first graph there talks about the Tu-95 Bear bomber mm -hmm. and the Tu-114 airliner derivative, which holds quote holds the world speed record for propeller aircraft. Oh, okay. 
But faster, uh, faster than even that 150. Yeah. The only time I've ever seen one of these in person, there's there was for a while, anyways, one that visited Oshkosh each summer. Um, some sort of 95? a bomber type aircraft, as I recall. It's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, um, hmm. I, I want to say it was British. And uh, um, but hmm. anyways, it was so. kind of rotating screws have even been trying on uh, submarines. So. Yeah. yeah, I think it was the Albacore. I can't talk about the Albacore though. It's going to make me hungry for sushi. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, what else we got here? So, uh, over the years, Jeb, you have been experimenting with various uh, uh, EFB, electronic flight book mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, 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 systems, um, going back to the days when you were rolling your own based on yeah. uh, off-the-shelf, which uh, you kind of still are. But uh, um, you've used a lot of different f- uh, configurations and systems and formats over the years. You and I just recently separately bought um, a, a new toy, a new uh, computer gadget toy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and but you on the other hand have actually taken it flying. What did what did you what did we both just buy? Um, I've got a, and you also have a Nexus 7 tablet, the Mm -hmm. 7-inch diagonal screen um, Android platform tablet. Yep. uh, Which uh, I'm finding um, is is a very nice little piece of kit. Yeah. Now, how is this better for you than, because you've had an iPad for a while now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I've got uh, an an original iPad. Uh, I call them an iPad 1. Uh, mine has the 64 gigs and the and the cell uh, capability, which gives it internal GPS. And I have used that as my um, uh, chart uh, case, essentially, uh, pretty much since the time I've got it. So we're looking at in a couple of years. Uh, anytime I need a chart, it's on there. Uh, I use ForeFlight um, on the device, uh, and I'm you know I like ForeFlight. I I, I uh, uh, it's it's predictable they keep adding stuff to it and uh it's you know certainly one of the class acts out there in the in the uh uh um, the tablet efb uh market um but i've gotten really dissatisfied recently with my ipad uh in part because it's you know uh, uh an ipad one it's relatively slow it's very sluggish and just using it around the house um, I've seen a lot of crashes, especially with Safari, sometimes with uh, ForeFlight. Uh, I've never had a crash of ForeFlight that I recall, anyway, uh, in the cockpit. Um, but uh, the whole thing was just, just a, a kind of a turnoff to me. And I've got an Android phone, and, and I was kind of curious about some of the new Android platforms out there, the tablets and whatnot. And... Um, as a result, kind of did some research and said, hey, you know, this, this Android, uh, this Nexus 7 tablet doesn't look too bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, the price is a, a buttload less mm-hmm. than, uh, uh, I, th- I don't know, I didn't price any mini iPads, but I, I got to think it's, it's still less than the mini iPad. And um, bit the bullet, or I should say uh, uh, I pulled the trigger um, back before Christmas. And uh, it played around with it a good bit. Um, well, well, the best, go well, best got a similar Christmas gift, uh, uh, Kindle Fire HD with the 4G. Ah, okay. Uh, which is, I believe, an 8.9-inch screen. 
Uh, I've only looked at it a couple of times. She's been deep into it since her Christmas trip, uh, renting movies and reading books and mm-hmm. checking email and, of course, playing free cell. Yeah, right. There you <laughs> go. Now, Jeb, the uh, on the Nexus, and, and so I, I haven't taken mine flying, so I, 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 there's not much I can say about the Nexus in that regard. Um, I, I, I'm liking it. Um, the Nexus, it's a Nexus Seven, it's a seven-inch diagonal screen, um, which makes it dramatically smaller than a traditional iPad, um, and even smaller than the so-called iPad Mini, which I've got a lot of issues with. But, uh, um, and uh, the uh, Nexus Seven uh, uses. Uh, I'm not. I'm not very knowledgeable. At, Android. I'm sort of still in the learning sure. phase right now, but but it's what I would call plain. Uh, it, it's untainted Android is what what I found very appealing. All right, is it, it's Android that has not been messed about with by one of the phone companies, one of the phone providers, um, which was one of the problems. I, I also I have an early uh, Dave. I have a a, a, a Kindle Fire. Um, um, uh, to use Jeb's terminology, a, a, a Kindle Fire One. It was one of the first generation ones. There's a newer one now, and it may be what you're talking about. But uh, the uh, Kindle Fire was very, very dissatisfying to me because it was, um, first of all, it wouldn't run the latest Android to begin with, and second of all, it was used this software that was kind of highly modified by Amazon in order to make it a, a book reading, exper- book reading and buying experience. And so, uh, so although I liked, I, there were a lot of things I liked about the Kindle Fire, um, not the least of which was the size. I really liked that seven-inch form factor. Um, I, I was unhappy with the software, and so I, I wanted to give the Nexus Seven a try as well. Um, and to the extent I've used it as a sort of generic tablet, not as an aviation tablet, um, I'm liking it so far. A few things I miss from my uh, iOS uh, stuff, but but for the most part, I'm liking it a lot. Now, as a as an aviation tool though jeb mm-hmm. um so the big gotcha has got to be that you can't get four flight is that correct well that's a gotcha um and i think the four flight guys are, are missing um um a, a substantial market uh if they don't port four flight over to the android platform i understand their stated reasons for not doing so um but uh, I, I I still think they're missing a substantial market. Yeah. That said, um, right before Christmas, uh, um, I, I took a flight from the West Coast to the East Coast. And when you're in Florida, that doesn't mean it's a very long flight. Yeah, I know. Huh? Um, and um, used had, had both of them <clears throat> up and running. Um, and in fact, had two different apps open on the, um, um, the Nexus. Um, the app I'm going to probably settle on is uh, Garmin's Pilot app. Uh, another uh, app I had open at the time was Navigator. Um, and uh, using the internal GPS on the Android, uh, on, the, on the Nexus 7, um, it um, you know, got a signal. Um, the software followed my progress, showed me you know, exactly where I was the whole time. Um, pulled up charts and, and, and all this kind of thing. Navigator and, uh, and, and Garmin Pilot both worked just fine on the device. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had really had no issues um, uh, with their performance. Um, they they perform the same as as uh, the iPad did with Forflight. Yeah. Now, in both in both cases, this software does all of the map downloading in advance. It doesn't need to download maps as it goes. Is that correct? That's correct. Both both Navigator and um, and Pilot um, like ForeFlight. Uh, the idea is to download all the um, the charts and whatnot that you need uh, before the flight, 
do your your flight planning within the app. Uh, and when you're doing testing, of course, that means doing the flight plan three times. Um, but um, uh, doing the flight planning within the app and then uh, uh, pulling up the active flight plan uh, as you take off and uh, letting it follow along and, and give you the moving map and uh, uh, everything else that the, 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 uh, the, the applications feature. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty nice deal. What is the, and the reason that's important, by the way, is, uh, is because both Jeb and I bought the Wi Fi only versions of the Nexus. So uh, even if there was some sort of cell data connection ability at the flight levels, you know, or at cruise level, um, couldn't do it on the, on the devices we bought. Apparently there is. You, Jeb, you're telling me there is a, a cell phone. Um, version of the Nexus. Um, I believe there you. Is, I just never there seen is a such a thing. capable version of the Nexus Seven. Um, it's another fifty bucks. Um, I just didn't can... see the need for it. I, I've never, um, even with my cell phone, my cell capable um, uh, iPad, I've never uh, signed up for the service. I've never used the cell side of that yeah. that device. Yeah. No, that's actually been my experience on my iPad as well. My I got an iPad that also had the uh, cell capability, and I did sign up at first, and I drifted away from it over time. I found mm-hmm. that a Wi-Fi only tablet was was adequate for me. Um, so yeah, it seemed like Wi-Fi and 4G is pretty much pushing cell out of favor with the those kind of mobile tablets. Yeah. Well, 4G is cell, but 4G is supposed to be awesome, by the way. I really want to 4G get... 4G is... I mean, my, my phone uh, is I guess 4G. that's right. It is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. My phone is 4G, and and um, uh, I like it. it. It sucks battery, but it's an early 4G device, so, yeah. I mean, they've they figured out some of the chipsets a lot better since then, and it won't suck as much power, but um, I have, on many occasions, just... You know, and most of the time when I'm out with my phone, I just turn off Wi-Fi. And I've got an all-you-can-eat. I'm grandfathered on Verizon with all-you-can-eat data. So right. um, it's a no-brainer for me just to keep the 4G on all the time. Yeah. And it works great. I'm very happy with 4G on my phone. Yeah, and I've heard stories about 4G being remarkably fast. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, just like faster than some home broadband uh-huh. connections, you know. Um, so anyways. Well, so... Uh, so last I, I mean, it's it's still early. I've only really made one flight with it. The the flight back was uh, I was rather the flight over over to the east coast was you know day VFR and no weather. The flight back was a little bit less comfortable, so I was more busy. Didn't really have time to play with the uh, uh, the toys. Right. But uh, I, I'm I'm very happy with the Nexus Seven on on several levels, not least of which being in cockpit, but. Uh, also, uh, you know, around the house, it's, it's fast, the screen's great, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the thing that has really sold me on it, um, in my cockpit anyway, has, is the, the physical size. Yeah. Um, the, the iPad, of course, is, is, a, is a much larger device. And, and using it uh, in a RAM mount that I have on the control arm of my, uh, my throw-over-yoke thing, um, it doesn't block nearly the same amount of real estate that the iPad right. blocks. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time um, and uh, getting up off my butt before I um, you know, get the appropriate mount for it. Uh, and um, you know, um, soon, very soon, someone may find a uh, used iPad on eBay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And you found that the 7-inch screen was big enough to adequately display what you needed. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, two things. One, the charts are pretty much all the same. Um, that, that technology's been figured out for some time now. 
Um, secondly, um, the pinch and zoom capabilities are, are uh, pretty much the same also. So if, if there's something on a, on a chart that I can't read because uh, these old eyes are, 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 are just not capable, well, I can zoom in. Um, the, uh, the, the main thing I was concerned about was approach plates mm-hmm. uh, and being able to read them. Uh, it turns out that the approach plate is about the size of the Nexus 7 to begin with, so yeah. there's not a whole lot lost there. Mm-hmm. And with the, with the zooming capability, uh, if you can't read some numbers or something like that, boom, you're, you're good. In my application, I've got the, the Garmin 530 in the panel, so I've got um, shooting an approach or, or, or just rough navigation. I've got pretty much everything that uh, in the panel as far as uh, um, situational awareness that the iPad or the Nexus 7 running an appropriate application would give me. What I don't have is the... Uh, um, the ability to display charts on the 530 or uh, and the ability to uh, zoom in and, and find, you know, what's the minimum descent altitude on this GPS approach into Podunk? I don't have that ability in the Garmin, mm-hmm. or I should say in the 530. Um, but I do have that, and that's really all I need um, uh, when it comes down to it in the way of a, of a chart bag, of an electronic chart bag or an EFB. So with that in mind, <clears throat> yeah. The, um, um, the the portable um, um, uh, Nexus or, or iPad solutions are great, and because it saves so much real estate uh, in the in the cockpit, uh, the Nexus I think is going to be the way I go. Yeah, and I don't want to put you on the spot here because I, you probably don't have it in your head, but the pricing of these other apps is it comparable to what ForeFlight was? Yeah, it is. ForeFlight, um, as I recall. Um, was is seventy nine ninety five a year that gives you all you can eat charts uh, and uh, updates and, and et cetera et cetera um, the um, Garmin Pilot I think is is uh, I don't know something a month I think it's like you know eight or nine ten bucks a month uh, so yeah you're you're looking at a slight uh, disparity there um, but uh, Garmin Pilot will also do a little bit more than uh, for flight at least um, on, a, on a platform comparison uh, if I had an appropriate ADSB in receiver uh, I could get not only weather but also traffic for flight I don't <laughs> think doesn't do ADSB in traffic I don't think yeah uh, and that's that's another you know concern consideration down the road is I want to uh, I want to add that capability at some point, which would also allow me wink wink nod nod to ditch my 396, which gives me the XM weather, Nextrad weather over the uh, right. over the sat- via satellite delivery, and um, um, start getting that information free. If I sell the iPad and the 396, um, I'm probably way ahead of the game. Yeah. Uh, on, on, on this stuff, so I don't know. I mean, I I haven't had a chance to to um, to fly enough with the Nexus yet to uh, um, fully decide that I'm I'm done with the 396 and the iPad, but I'm certainly headed that way. Yeah, David, anything you want to add to this? I, I you don't own one of these devices, but I know you pay a lot of attention to this space. And uh... Uh, well, I I do. I haven't used. Uh, a couple of these devices, but I've used the root software that you guys have talked about, played with it some. Uh, it's all good stuff. I think a big part of it is getting what works for you and then working with what you got. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm still using an old-fashioned, uh, built-to-be electronic flight bag, uh, which I believe has about a six-inch screen on it. Uh, and it works great, approach plates and profile nav and all that stuff, but I'm not sure how much longer it's, longer it's going to be supported because it's no longer being made or marketed. So right. time marches on. Yep. Yeah, I've also got an old Samsung Q1. If anybody wants it, <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember. I remember that was the exciting new technological solution. Well, and and back in the day, it was it was cutting edge stuff. Um, I remember the first time I tried to launch with it using it as a as a as a chart bag, and um, needed to pull up an in route an IFR low altitude in route chart uh, to find some fix that I'd just been cleared to, and the whole thing just promptly crashed right in my lap, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think this is going to work long term. That. Um, <laughs> um, you were an unhappy camper. <laughs> I was not a happy camper. Fortunately, I, I this was a trip to Oshkosh, and, and uh, uh, fortunately, I was stopping uh, to pick up a passenger and whatnot, and basically bought every IFR low altitude chart in the place at the FBO uh, I stopped at. So um, it all worked out. But at the same time, yeah, the, 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 there's a moral there, folks. Um, you know, if you're thinking about transitioning from paper to electronic uh, for your charting, um, don't you know automatically ditch your paper and and think that you'll muddle through on the on the electronic charting the first time. You might not do it the first five times. There's always you know some. It's an application. There's always a learning curve. There's there's uh, incompatibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, fly with both of them for a while until yeah. you're comfortable. You until you, you figured out uh, the ins and outs. It's, nothing's more frustrating than trying to pull up uh, a chart on an on a EFB that you can't find. Right. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, would spend three, four hours sitting with these things in the living room, playing with them, playing first with the instruction booklet, then without the instruction booklet, and... and uh, I never got to the try to do it blindfolded phase, though. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. But, you know, inevitably, uh, when I'd get up and use it, I would find myself wanting to do something that I didn't know how to do or not remembering something I thought I knew how to do. Uh, and that's when you, like talking on a cell phone when you're driving, if, if you're about to arrive someplace, it's best to revert back to old habits and put the damn thing away. Really? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. otherwise, um, you might land on a road. Yeah, or, yeah, right. Short of the runway. Short of the runway. So, uh, moving on here. Uh, so, this is this is an item that's been on the list for a while, and for some reason, we've skipped over it um, for a few episodes now. Um, but this is—I don't know—is this an interesting story? The Concorde. Um, this is a story that you found, Jeb, and put on the list itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's from a website that's uh, Patrick Smith's Ask the Pilot, which I have no idea whether this is a re- reputable um, site or not. Patrick Smith, for a couple of years, several years maybe, had a column, regular column on Salon.com. Uh, okay. Uh, called Ask the Pilot, and uh, ah, okay. Um, I, I don't know Patrick. I, he and I have communicated a couple of times. Uh, he's uh, a longtime pilot. He's an airline uh, jock um, and, uh, and certainly knows his way around the airline community. Um, I, I, I don't know everything there is to know about this particular story. I don't know everything there is to know about the uh, uh, the Concorde crash. Yeah. Uh, in, so uh, When was it, 2000? 
Uh, yeah, 2000. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So just to try and summarize this somehow, um, so the, this is again from uh, askthepilot.com. The headline is The Untold Story of the Concorde Disaster. Um, this is an article, again, on this website dated December 9, 2012. And uh, at the risk of summarizing it badly, because it's a fairly extensive story here, mm-hmm. um, he's pointing out that 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 the conventional wisdom is that we've all seen images of the Concorde taking, in fact, there's one on this story, of the uh, that final Concorde taking off with a plume, a big plume of fire coming out of its uh, um, sort of out of its tail, so to speak, or out of the trailing edge of one of its wings, and uh, um, and and everyone seems to say, you know, the fire is what caused the crash, and, and what he's suggesting in this article is that that it may not be the case that the fire caused the crash. Um, oh, he's not. He's not suggesting it. He's saying he's saying it outright. That, you know, and uh, he's the opinion of Concorde pilots. Is that there were other reasons why that airplane came down, and the fire has nothing to do with any of them. Yeah, and that this airplane might well know. I mean, the fire probably contributed to the whole thing, because one of the things they're saying here is that the flight engineer shut down the good end, the remaining good engine, on that side. Yeah. Um, unnecessarily and that right. that led them to have insufficient power to fly, to keep the airplane up and um, as well, well as other is, I remember this so well because Concorde was coming to Oshkosh that week uh, the accident in Paris everything got grounded right all and the all the Concorde the flight yeah. didn't make it in and it was a big blow to everyone's expectations and all that uh, and like so badly done in too many cases in the last decade or so. Uh, people tried to turn this into a criminal act and turn it into a prosecutorial event. Uh, and what spawned this article that uh, Jeb put on here uh, is the uh, French court tossing out uh, criminal convictions against, I think it was a mechanic at Continental, just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. No, it was Continental generally, wasn't it? I don't think it was targeting any specific person. Um, uh, I think under French law, uh, you're right. Yeah, corporations can be found liable for this. Yeah. So, yeah, because Continental. So the the way Continental came into this story for people who haven't been been keeping up with it is that uh, I think just about everybody agrees that what what ultimately caused the fire was that there was a piece of metal debris on the runway that punctured one of the tires of the Concorde, then the exploding tire did things to the fuel tank, the fuel tank ruptured and, and chaos, you know, chaos ensued. Um, and and it's and I cannot for the life of me understand how they can be so certain, but just about everybody seems to agree that the piece of metal on the runway came off of a Continental Airlines DC-10 which took off just prior to the Concorde's attempted takeoff. Well, and, part of uh, the reason they're certain about that is because uh, the Continental airplane got to its destination with without that strip yeah but I, I you know i mean i guess it's probably true i'm not really challenging it i'm just saying wow who figured this out you know like okay they figured out that the piece fell on the runway and that it punctured the tire and etc cetera, etc cetera. anyways um that's how Con- continental got into this this whole situation yeah the, the, the airplane was grossly overweight it was out of cg now that's the part uh, that i had never heard before and and i never you know I when never, this, yeah. when things started to go south everything went south yeah, but but this overweight out of CG thing is just like that's a big deal. I mean, I don't understand why. I don't know. Out, I think the out of CG uh, is is bigger than the overweight thing. It was six tons overweight, 
in, in percentages, that's not all that much. Okay. Yeah. Uh, shutting down the, the only good engine on that side of the airplane is a major problem. Right. That's a big foobar. And, and um, keep in mind also that um, there's also discussion in the story about uh, the main landing gear being damaged. Yeah, they, and as they a took consequence, off, right. Go ahead. The um, uh, airplane on its takeoff roll um, was tracking uncontrollably, as it were, uh, off the runway. The captain, um, um, apparently, according to the story anyway, um, pulled the aircraft off the, um, off the uh, runway below um, the VR rotation speed, which left it at a high angle of attack um, and needing literally every pound of thrust it could get. Um, add to that a fire, add to that uh, being out of weight, uh, I'm sorry, out, out of CG and slightly overweight, uh, and then you shut down the only remaining good engine on that side, and eh, man, you got a whole handful of problems. Yeah. Is you just a passenger on the way to the scene that's, of the crash? Exactly right. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. Anybody who cares ought to take a look. It's uh, from askthepilot.com. The headline is Untold Story of the Concorde Disaster. And uh, yeah, pretty interesting. I don't know. You know. Yeah. yeah. Crazy stuff. It, it, which, which. <laughs> I don't, you know, you hear about the, um, and especially when you're dealing in, in, in accident investigation or aviation safety generally, uh, you, you always hear about the chain of events that lead to an accident and how if you break a link in that chain, then maybe the accident doesn't occur. And there's just so many different stories and, and so many, you know, once you, once a tragedy like, like this occurs, you, um, um, start working the chain backwards and find all these different links that, you know, if you'd taken one of these links out, maybe this wouldn't have happened kind of thing. There's a lot of them here. Uh, it's not just running running over a strip of titanium on the runway and cutting a tire. That, um, <clears throat> I'll admit, at the time, sounded kind of fishy, but there wasn't any evidence or any other information coming forward uh, to, to shed light on other problems with the airplane. Um... Now, of course, you know, we've got all these, these additional details that have come out, and I'm, I'm sure they've come out, you know, before today. But um, um, it, it does kind of add to that, let's say add a fuel to the fire, that, uh, um, you know, it's not just one thing. It's not just uh, a strip of, of titanium cut a tire and the tire exploded, sending, you know, some, some tire material into the gas tank and causing the fire. I tend to discount this article's um, uh, minimization of the impact of the fire itself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry, any fire on any airplane at any time is a problem. Um, the story notes that be, you know because of the intensity of the fire uh, and um, the the uh, the tank kind of sort of emptying itself, self-emptying, if you will. Uh, the fire would have been out, you know, in, in a matter of uh, a few more moments. That makes some sense, but we don't know what other damage this fire may have caused. Right. 
Uh, we don't know what uh, other systems might have been affected. Whether or not they could have brought this thing around and put it back on a runway, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to know. But it's a very interesting story. It was interesting enough to begin with, but all these other factors. Uh, I hadn't heard a lot of this stuff before. Yeah, that's the thing. I just hadn't heard a lot of this stuff before. It was a very interesting story. Yeah. Um. We are beginning to reach the end of our allotted time here. There's a couple items on this list I really wanted to touch on. We talked a couple episodes ago about the uh, Mosquito uh, World War II aircraft that uh, was restored down in New Zealand, and it had uh, flown some demos down there, and we had heard that it was going to be packed up and sent to the States and got all excited about the idea of seeing it maybe this summer. Turns out that, uh, that, and and this is only fair because they did the work down there in New Zealand, they've apparently decided to hold off and keep it in New Zealand for a while, so uh, it's... uh, it's flying some air shows down in, uh, in uh, still down in New Zealand, and uh, I bloody well don't blame them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean we all want to, but you know they apparently you know and I mean this is not like when I first heard this story I thought okay this is an aircraft that was found in New Zealand and that's why it was restored in New Zealand. Apparently that's not the case. Um, the uh, the U.S. citizen uh, who actually uh, put the money into this whole thing found the aircraft in I think it was in Canada. Um, and uh, he got it from a small British Columbia museum in 2004, and he sent it to New Zealand, where he believed, effect, uh, apparently correctly, that uh, there was the expertise needed to uh, to uh, restore this thing. Apparently, it involved, according to this story, again, I'm looking at an Avweb story here, um, they had to recreate some of the quote-unquote massive molds used to shape the plywood for much of the airframe. So, uh, rebuilding this plywood aircraft uh, uh, it was 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 a, a was no mean feat. Let me put it that way, and uh, you know, and thus you know, partly at least partly explains why there are uh, no other of these uh, still airworthy. So, uh, um, so it's still down in, in uh, New Zealand, and uh, you know, although the, the good news is that that they get they're going it's going to be winter down there. Uh, it's summer now, and uh, and it'll get to be winter. Maybe they'll pack it up in time for our summer because it probably won't have an awful lot of opportunity down there during their winter. <laughs> Oh, and it's right up there with the P-38 Lightning and having a sweet, sweet song. Yeah, I've never, I've obviously never seen one fly. I think this would be very, very cool. I uh, I, I hope, I'm, and I, I'm optimistic that one of these days we'll get a chance to see this airplane fly, but uh, um, we need to give it a name, though. Uh, does it have a name? I, I'm trying to, you know, we call it the, the Jaegen Mosquito, because Jerry Jaegen is the guy who owns it and put up the money. Um well, how about how about the mosquito because it's the only one of its kind. Flying. The mosquito. Well, but see that there, no because we want to hope that there will be. We'll call it the first mosquito or the, you know, so the Jaegen, stinger. The Jaegen, the the Jaegen. Oh, I don't know. We're going nowhere with this. <laughs> yeah, you have to work on it. I know. We'll have to work on it. Shout outs. Got a couple of shout-outs here. Um, let's see now. Uh, who wants to uh, do, do this first one? We, we, this is like, what a concept. Jeb. Yeah, what a, what a concept. I we, know, huh? We have an FAA administrator again. Yeah, which is... Who to funk it? Not the norm. I mean, if you like, if you sat down and added up the uh, the number of months over the last few years where we've had an, an, an official real administrator uh, and not, uh, it's a disturbing number. But, uh, yeah, so what happened, Jeb? Well, what happened is uh, Michael Huerta, uh, who had been acting administrator for more than a year, has it been uh, that long? Really, was finally wow. confirmed by the U.S. Senate uh, in recent days. I guess uh, New Year's Eve or something. Uh, uh, New Year's Day, excuse me. <clears throat> um, and uh, is now the uh, full-time, full bore uh, FAA administrator. 
uh, if he serves out his full five-year term as administrator, he will be the, the longest-serving administrator in FAA history. Really? Uh, Is that to, true? You know, putting his 13 months uh, as acting together with his five years. Ah, I see what you're saying. Okay. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but... Uh, now, wasn't he? Didn't he actually get confirmed like like on the the, the second yes yesterday, right? Yeah, yesterday. Well, let's let's click the link. Where did I see this? I saw a story someplace that seemed to say that there was a whole bunch of uh, of uh, I thought it was confirmations New Year's Eve when it happened, but I thought it was uh, New Year's Eve also. So, anyways, congratulations to uh, to Administrator Huerta and uh, and to the Senate for pulling it off. I'm curious though. Give me a quick civics le- civics lesson here. All right, so. Yeah. Huerta was the confirmation involved, you know, some sort of Senate hearings, some sort of committee right. hearings, and then presumably yeah, ago. that committee then, you know, blessed, waved their hand over his head and said, you know, this guy's good, you know, we recommend him. Does that committee recommendation go away? Because we just changed Congresses here. All right, we just okay, went. Now, let's we back had, up. Yeah. but now, now I didn't. I really didn't want to get into the politics of it. I'm curious simply about the the civics of it. All right, and that is that if it had not been confirmed prior to the adjournment of the 112th Congress, would it starts all over. Would again. the 113th have to have had that committee re you know do the whole thing? I mean, it may or may yeah, not have not done. If they didn't want to. They may or may not have done the testimony, but would they have had to vote it out again? Is what I'm yes. asking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. The nomination would have to have been refiled uh, with the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Commerce Committee would have had to have acted on it on some level. They may not have had to have held, held full-blown hearings as they did. But um, if, if someone had objected you know, along right. the way, yeah, they wouldn't need to go back and do the hearings. Interesting. Um, okay. And then the committee, at its option, uh, would forward the nomination to the full Senate for action um, and yeah, yeah, as I said earlier, um, all the nominations expired with the expiration of, of the 112th Congress. When the 113th Congress meet, met today, um, there were no pending nominations. Yeah. Okay. We have to, we'll have to, we have to create a schoolhouse rock, um, you know, song for, you know, appointing an administrator. And it's like, you know, I am an administrator. I'm only an administrator. Oh, never mind. Okay. Uh, I know nothing. I want to. Uh, uh, yes, we're Sergeant Schultz when you really need me. My shout out is not really a shout out so much as an announcement. I think we agreed to this today, uh, <laughs> Jeb, um, that yeah. uh, we're during Sebring. Sebring's coming up in a couple weeks, the uh, LSA Expo at Sebring oh, Airport in Florida. Man. And uh, we're going to hold a little impromptu uh, informal uh, UCAP meetup uh, during Sebring. Uh, and uh, I think what we want to do is do it at the basically the same day, same format, same timing structure that we did last year, which worked pretty well. And that would have it happen on Saturday morning during Sebring, which I believe this year is the, ooh, I should have that date in front of me. It's the 19th. Thank you, 19th. According, according to the Google yes. uh, calendar. Saturday the 19th, 11 a.m., 11 a.m., and we'll try and get a table in the Terminal Building restaurant. There's a nice little restaurant okay, there. Okay, hang on a second. Now, are you ready? All right, everybody sitting down? Yeah. Everybody everybody listening? Everybody got the ears on? Ready. Jack, do you think this episode will be out before then? <laughs> So we're going to do it there. Uh, so look for us in the uh, restaurant of the Terminal Building. Um, as an alternate, look for us. Uh, there's sort of a deck. There's sort of a porch. And the Friday of Sebring doesn't count. Out on the uh, <laughs> out on the ramp side of that Terminal Building lobby. And a uh, very pleasant place to hang out out there, too. So you'll find uh, uh, myself and probably Jeb, uh, and uh, unfortunately not Dave, but uh, out there at uh, Sebring on uh, Saturday morning, 11 a.m. And I look forward to meeting anybody who's in the area. And come on by. 
what else? Uh, you guys got shout-outs? I got one. Go. Uh, long-time friend, smart leader, great pilot, and uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Bombardier Safety Stand Down, Rick Rowe, who uh, was hand-in-hand with Bob Agostino when this thing started years ago. Uh, is retiring after 24 years with the company. Uh, retired uh, just, uh, let's see, yesterday. How about that? And uh, he started out there as a technical writer. Uh, he uh, worked up to get the experience to uh, that they needed to become a Learjet demonstration pilot. Uh, he's worked on the demo team. He's been the standard safety and training captain. He's been chief pilot of the uh, demo team twice. Uh, he's been manager of the safety stand down programs over the last few years, uh, and kind of, uh, been part and parcel to it expanding into an international event, uh, with, uh, shorter versions at eBase and LaBase, the business aviation shows in Europe and, uh, South America. So, Rick, good luck in retirement, man. I, uh, I hope you can stand up to the free time that it'll give you. I know. See, it's, uh, yeah, that is a great program, and uh, he deserves a lot of uh, thanks for putting that program together and, and evolving it the way that it has. So, uh, yeah. Any other shout-outs, Jeb? No, no, no. Just uh, congratulations to Huerta. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's Jeb Burnside. Jeb's a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. You've been working on anything fun, Jeb? Anything you want to tell us about? Uh, working on a February issue of, of Safety. Mm-hmm. Um, working on a couple of projects for um, uh, AEA's uh, Avionics News, and uh, looking forward to a couple more. I um, uh, did a project for a friend uh, recently. I'll be able to talk about it in a few months. Mm-hmm. And um, looking forward to uh, uh, looking forward to uh, Sebring. Looking forward to uh, getting the next issue of uh, Safety in the Can and um, tackling some other stuff. So, yeah, yeah, everything's good. And and just you know, we probably we, I think long term long time listeners know this, but I just say it again. Um, on, sadly, uh, Aviation Safety Magazine is not available on newsstands. It's by subscription only. If someone mm-hmm. wanted to get a subscription, how would they go about doing uh, that? AviationSafetyMagazine dot com is a great place to start. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, uh, some snippets of um, uh, articles up. Um, might be some some older articles that are available in full text, uh, but you can. Uh, uh, pull out a credit card and subscribe right there on the spot. Yeah. And where else on the internet can we find you, Jeb? Uh, jeburnside.com is a personal website. Um, AEA.net, the aforementioned Avionics News Magazine. Uh, sometimes on uh, uh, avweb.com. Um, and, um, you know, some of the social media sites also. Yeah. And uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, David, uh, what have you been working on? Well, a little piece in the uh, January World Aircraft Sales uh, about preparing for handling medical issues for yourself or your passengers when you're in flight. Uh, Some of the common sense steps that you can take, some of the... uh, uh, more unusual preparations that you might want to take, particularly if you have anybody traveling with you regularly that might suffer from a little edema or maybe some heart arrhythmia or who knows, or just bring three aspirin and call me in the morning. And uh, where can people find you on the Internet? 
Oh, let's see, avbuyer.com, aea.net for the avionics news stuff, that safety magazine that Jeb was just talking about. Uh, I show up there once in a while. Uh, Or just throw a a Google dart and remember that I'm not smart enough to be a theoretical physicist and I never liked golf. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can uh, check out my uh, Kindle eBooks uh, or the Around the Field uh, collection. Uh, volume one has been out for quite some time now, um, and uh, uh, the Around the Field uh, collections about the stories uh, about the uh, people, places, and planes of the Oshkosh fly-in. And uh, Volume one covered years 1998 through 2001. Volume two, which I just now submitted, is actually in the approval process at Amazon. Volume two covers years 2002, three, and and four, and uh, and I'm cr- you know crossing my fingers, knocking on wood that uh, it will be available for purchase in the Amazon Kindle store uh, in the next couple of days. So uh, check that out. Uh, you can learn more about that and my other uh, Amazon Kindle stuff at uh, Amazon.com/author/Jack Hodgson. And in general, learn more about me at JackHodgson.com and AroundTheField.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, please take a few minutes to check out Echo, the general aviation online media channel at uncontrolledairspace.com slash echo. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, did you have something you wanted to say to us? Well, if you want to live at least until Top Gun Day in May, uh, you uh, need to go out and fly because as Tom Cruise is proof of time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. I'm really not sure if I want to see that film. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. I'm really not sure if I want to see that film. <laughs> oh, is that what you're talking about? Is that when the new movie comes out, David? I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, I, I just saw the declaration Top Gun Day, May 13th. Oh. I think that's when they're going to re-release the original in 3D. Oh, that's probably what it is. Ah. I have okay. heard about that. Or 3D or... or and just or, call me Anvil. Yeah, right. I know, huh? We already knew I was hard-headed, so... Yeah. Anyways, okay.